Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hey, welcome back to The Crux, everyone. This is Gary Sheffer. I'm here with Mike Fernandez. How you doing, Mike? Great, how are you? Is any warmer up in your neck of the woods? Yeah, you know, today we actually got to zero Celsius. We're at 32 degrees. Amazing. Amazing. Well, (laughs) hey, given what's going on with the weather across the North America, I believe anything at this point and hoping for good things for everybody down in Texas after all of the the problems they've had. So look, let's let's get into, we've got a great guest, a really fun conversation. And I've got a, a news topic that we'll get into later on. Dean Acosta, who's the CCO at Lockheed, and he's got a NASA background. So I still have goosebumps, Mike, you know, just thinking about <laughs> talking to, to Dean. Look, so here's another fanboy thing from me. A massive Springsteen fan. And as you probably heard. You, he you, and you know, the root word for fan is fanatic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's nothing rational about some of these crushes I have here. So Springsteen's arrested for DUI, drunk driving charges last November, which is key. He does the Jeep commercial for the Super Bowl. And then it comes out that- He's riding a motorcycle, right? So he's in this park in New Jersey and some fans wait, he's on a motorcycle, fans wave him over. They want a photo with him and he agrees to do it. And he either had one or two shots of tequila. He gets you can't back. remember if you have two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> well, there's some dispute about this. He gets back on the motorcycle. He doesn't pull away, but the park police are watching and they arrest him for driving drunk, essentially. But what I thought was interesting about this is a couple things. Jeep's reaction and then the sort of crisis communications case that comes out. Jeep decided after this came out to pull the ad that was on the Super Bowl off the air, saying they were taking a quote-unquote pause in the commercial until the actual facts can be established. And then there was some leaks back and forth where Springsteen's camp leaked that his blood alcohol level was only 0.02, a quarter of the state limit in New Jersey. But then the police leaked that, in fact, he was glassy-eyed and swaying and didn't do too well in some of the field sobriety and that yeah. wasn't dancing to the music, right? That wasn't dancing in the dark. No, that was <laughs> that was swaying. What's the swaying song? I'll think of it. But anyway, what I want to know is here is where does Springsteen go from here? Where do you go in the crisis management activity here? He's got to contend with a court case. He's lost the Jeep ad. And his fan base is sort of confounded by all of this. He's built an image of clean living every man among the public. So first question should Jeep have pulled the ad before this is, as they say, adjudicated? Well, first thing, good thing he wasn't driving a Jeep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And uh, look, I should have set this up. You and I have both had experiences with celebrity spokespeople. We, we have, we have, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, and, and, and the other thing here is, is so Jeep is certainly in today's world in its right to pause the ad. You know, it is their reputation as as much as it is Springsteen's, yeah. you know, and, and and so here you have a vehicle. It's very difficult if 
your product is a vehicle and your spokesperson has been picked up, whether it was in a, you know, in a Jeep or not, of being under the influence or, or even speeding, you know, I mean, it, it's, I, the, the interesting thing to me in all of this is that the commercial was actually taped fairly close to its airing. And so the actual incident took place in November. So I don't know what he was thinking or his team was thinking in signing the contract to begin with, you know, before kind of laying all this out, or if they thought that they somehow would get underneath the radar and that this wouldn't come out. So there are a lot of things still to know about this, but, you know, I think long-term, I don't think it hurts his reputation. He's, you know, he's made millions of dollars. People love his music. People will still go to his concerts. And and, and so I don't think it hurts him there. But I I, I do think it's, you know, there are moral clauses in contracts now when you sign talent. And I think this is a normal course of business. That said, you know, you you also wonder, there were people that loved the ad and there were also people that disliked the ad. Yeah, exactly. You know, because it was was an interesting message. I mean, you know, I I think it's- About finding common ground, right? About finding common ground. You know, so, so there is a chapel in Kansas standing on the exact center, you know, of the lower 48. It never closes, you know, I mean, and it had this whole imagery around the need for middle ground, common ground. And I just think that there may have been something too that maybe, you know, maybe if the commercial was doing something more positive, maybe, maybe Jeep. Maybe you keep might, it on. Yeah. Maybe Jeep would have kept it on. Now, going to past experience, I can't name names, but at one point I was in the middle of a discussion where an athlete had been hired to do advertising for State Farm. And we were getting ready to announce that we were going to do a whole series of ads with this individual. And then they got pulled over for driving over 100 miles per hour. And so here you are, State Farm, an insurance company. Wow. You know, so you're all about safety, right? Right. It's not even the product. It's in terms of the, the, the automobile like Jeep, you're all about securing things. And we went round and round and round as to whether or not we should still keep the athlete. We, we did pause. We didn't announce. We waited several months before we moved ahead with that athlete, but made it abundantly clear to the athlete that were he to press the metal a little too heavy in the future, <laughs> that there was even an exit clause where we'd claw some of the funds back. Back, yeah. So, so I, I, again, I think this is normal course of business in today's yeah. world. The other thing I, I would say is much like Bruce Springsteen, and, and to take a public example that I had nothing to do with, if you take the Kobe Bryant had a moment, shall we say, with someone who worked at a hotel that was not his wife. And that got lots of attention. Mm -hmm. But what allowed Kobe Bryant to get beyond it is he still had another day to play. Yes. And ultimately he won, I think, you know, two NBA championships for the Lakers afterwards. And pretty much people forgot that this event ever happened. Yeah. And, you know, this is... This may seem like a topic that is a one-off or a rare 
this is going on increasingly. You know, I'm trying to learn as much as I can these days about influencers. Mm -hmm. and, oh, yeah. And, you know, and these TikTok influencers. And it seems like when you go through them, every one of them has something in their background. They find a tweet, they find a statement, you know, something happened. And so lots of We've been finding that out with members of Congress. Yeah, totally. exactly. <laughs> that's right. And so anyway, I, I, I just, I think Jeep is right here, particularly because mm -hmm. Springsteen didn't disclose the DUI arrest as he was filming the ad and as it was being aired. Okay, another second topic. I saw that Edelman announced the big PR agency, Edelman Studios, and it's forming it out of its content creation division, forming Edelman Studios, be headed up by a guy named Jared Moses, head of Edelman's United Entertainment Group. That's a significant move for Edelman and any PR agency for that matter, and seems to be really an inevitable outcome given the increased role of content creation in PR, something our guest today is going to talk about. So this comes on the heels of Edelman losing a couple big clients. I don't know if that's the genesis for this, but Richard Edelman explained the move this way. They have a goal to become a full service agency, and it's in response to the need for clients to tell their own stories. So my, my question, Mike, on this is, what do you make of Edelman Studios and how do you see the role of content creation involving in public relations? Yeah, so I think fundamentally for some time, but it's, it's increased in today's world. The line between public relations, marketing, and advertising is all blurred. Yes. You know, we, we, we might, today we literally use the same tools. We might use them in different ways to reach different types of audiences. And particularly in large companies, there's a need to, you know, bring those together in some framework so that your, your, your messages are well aligned yeah. and that what you say to one audience isn't disrupting what you're saying to another or in disagreement with what you're saying to another. When I was at Burson Marsteller before it became BCW, Burson Cone Wolf, it, it too had a, a studio and we tried to frame that and, and use that to market the firm. And indeed, even now that firm is doing a lot of advertising for folks like the, the New York Department of Transportation. Yeah, right. You look at some regional firms across the country. There's one I know that's in my backyard in South Carolina, a group called Chernoff Newman. And yeah. they do both marketing and PR. Yeah. And they're doing advertising for local companies and regional companies and, and, and various governmental and entities. I think it's a natural flow of, of all of us have recognized the peso model. Yep. And all of us recognize that what we're looking at is we're looking at different channels. Those channels aren't necessarily on a television any longer. They're right. online. And what we do online and what we do in television, what we do in radio, what we do over a podcast, all of those need to mesh in a smart, integrated way. Yes. And I hope, and I completely agree with, with Richard's approach here uh, of integrating across all of these platforms. And content is king, I do yeah. think. Yeah. And so I, I love this approach. And my concern is that the sort of public affairs reputation side of the house, when you're in-house, uh -huh. uh -huh. gets equal treatment and access. 
Well, here's, here's where I disagree with what you just said, because I do think the fundamental difference between marketing and PR is, or marketing and advertising and, and then PR, is that marketing and advertising are fu fundamentally focused on content. Yeah. And I do think from a public relations crisis management standpoint, you really, while you use content, you're, what you're grappling for is context. Yeah. And, and and so as long as we keep those in relative focus, then it's not just creating stuff, but it's creating stuff for a purpose. Right. You know, creating stuff so that we're it, we're relating well to the various stakeholders that matter to us on a particular issue or around a particular product or idea, then that's fine business. Yeah. And and, and I think just being very clear around what you're doing and what you're trying to reach as opposed to just doing more. Yeah. Uh, I, I can remember it was Sergio. So, yeah. Because Sergio Zeman, who was famous as the CMO for Coca-Cola years ago, when Gazueta was, was the CEO. CEO yeah. uh, you remember New Coke, but yep. his whole thing was, you know, that marketing essentially was all about doing more, you know, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll do more and people will pay more as a result of all of that. And, and, and I think that we can't all of a sudden move into a world where all we're doing is flooding the gates with information. Yeah. Uh, in, in some ways, that's kind of where we live today. Yeah. What we need to be able to do is create some discernment that allows people to make smart decisions. Yeah. You know, the one thing I would say is, and you're really smart to make the distinction context and content. Content can give you context, right? In other words, yeah. so I remember Fukushima and there was lots being said about GE's reactors. They were the ones that melted down in Fukushima in Japan after the earthquake and tsunami and been a big story in the New York Times about the adequacy of the protections on our, historically, on our reactors. And we were able to draw on some content capability to show people what, how a boiling water reactor actually worked, what the technology looked like versus the description provided by the New York Times. It went a long way to your point, Mike. It's, so, it's such a point well made on using content to create context and, under, and deepen understanding. Okay, so last topic, and just one I'm so anxious to talk about, I can hardly contain myself. I wanna talk about NASA's Mars Perseverance rover. Our guest today is the former chief spokesperson for NASA. And this thing was launched in July, it landed yesterday, the fifth time a, you know, a rover has been sent to Mars by NASA. And Imagine they uh, missed the whole baseball season. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to celebrate this achievement and showcase good communication practices. I want to take a look at the communications from NASA surrounding the rover. Oh, I went in and I got... I got the press kit mm -hmm. for Perseverance, and it's an excellent example of NASA's approach to communications. It explains co complex topics, topics clearly from the background of Mars itself to a detailed background of the launch phases for Perseverance. The first element in the, is an entire section called Seven Things to Know About the Mars 2020 Perseverance Mission. Anyway, long story short, hashtags, blogs, live broadcast on Twitter, around the landing in Mars with really good commentary from scientists and engineers themselves. 
This is a beautiful, by the way, example of what we just talked about. Right, right. They have content, but they've also provided context as to to why and how. It's it's amazing. Yeah, I think we talked about too on uh, on the crux previously, Mike. If you remember, we went and dug out the the press kit to Apollo Eleven. Yeah, and, and that was that was so cool to look at. Anyway, I, I just been really impressed. You don't not many people in our profession give government communicators a lot of credit. Mm-hmm. But this is a case where we could really emulate some of their practices. Absolutely. And and, and so I guess the question here is, is this proof that we can still communicate complex science clearly, persuasively, and with the context that you mentioned? And can it be emulated by others? I think it can. I mean, obviously, they have lots of resources, and, and, and they do it very well, and they're very good at analogy. And I think the surprising thing for some people when they look at this as a government ex- exercise is just how transparent yes, you yeah. know, it all is. Now, that, that hasn't always you know, been the tale of NASA in its earlier days as well depicted by the book and then the movie The Right Stuff. There was a little bit of all about self-promotion and, yeah. you know, we, we, we make movie stars out of our astronauts. And, and then we ultimately had the Challenger space accident 35 years ago, where, you know, essentially the, the rocket at liftoff blew up. Right. And it was days and weeks before we knew the real story about the O-rings that had not performed because of the weather conditions. Yeah, freezing weather. Um, freezing weather, but, which NASA had been forewarned about. And today it's a much different NASA. Yeah. Today what we have is it's, you know, everybody's information is more readily available in terms of the parts, the equipment, what it's all intended to do. And it, it is impressive. And I think particularly companies faced with real challenges or, or a crisis, it would behoove them to think through, you know, do we create essentially an electronic news package that allows people to better understand the context in which you're operating and what you're trying to do as you manage something very complicated mm-hmm. and difficult. And and do it in a way too, Mike. You know, there's as I was watching this landing yesterday that our guest Dina Costa will talk about. You know, things could have gone terribly wrong, mm-hmm. right? And 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 so it's not a glorification, although no. by its essence it does when it's successful. But just letting people access to who who you are, what you're doing, your culture, all those things. I'm, I've been mightily impressed. Yeah. And by the way, one of the things, you know, NASA's not always right either. Mm-hmm. You know, I was searching around for things on the internet and they recently declassified the 1962 space plan for the United States. And the plan was that most of us know, Kennedy, we're going to put a man on the moon in this decade, which the U.S. did. The plan was to send a manned mission to Mars by 1975. So we missed that one by a little bit. <laughs> right? We're excited by this probe. But we did get an SUV vehicle on. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Well, and, 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 you know, I say, I say that jokingly, but the other thing that, 
I think people will find with Dean and we find with a lot of the communicators with NASA is they've gotten very good at analogies yeah. that, that, that help us think about what these complicated tools are. So yeah. one of the analogies that they've used, they said, well, it's about the size of an SUV. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's really amazing, really amazing. So as part of this space special edition of the Crux, Mike, we're gonna go to our guest now, Dina Costa, who used to be with NASA and now is the top communicator at Lockheed Martin. guest today on The Crux is the Chief Communications Officer for one of the world's most significant aerospace, defense, and advanced technology systems companies, Lockheed Martin. Dean Acosta is an impressive communicator who has proven himself in journalism and in the public and private sectors. After an early career in broadcast and print journalism and winning an Emmy for his reporting, Dean Acosta would get what Gary and I would think is the plum jobs of all jobs. Dean would serve as the chief spokesperson for NASA. I'm so jealous. Keep going, Mike. Keep going. After four years in that role, he entered the corporate world, leading communications teams for Boeing's uh, space exploration business, then Lockheed Martin's engineering and technology organization. Then he would serve as the global head of corporate communications at Phillips 66. And then he went to Honeywell and later became the CCO of its smart home technology spinoff, Presidio. Just two years ago, he returned to Lockheed Martin as a senior vice president and chief communications officer, eight years after having left the company's engineering and technology organization. The last two years have been, shall we say, rather busy. <laughs> For both Dean and his team, Lockheed Martin has had done incredible in the marketplace in terms of sales and earnings the last two years. This past summer, the company selected a new CEO. It is in the throes of a $4.5 billion acquisition of Aerojet Rocketdyne, and to top it off, had to help a workforce of some 110,000, mostly manufacturing and research employees, navigate COVID-19 and still meet all of its contract obligations with government and industrial customers. And then this week, for Dean, it has been a bit of back to the future with NASA's Perseverance rover, which Lockheed Martin played a role in, which landed on the planet Mars just this past Thursday. So Dean, welcome to the crux. Well, thank you for having me and Mike, great to see you and Gary and, and the, the team that helps put this together. Thank you for having me on. So you've been a busy guy. Tell us a bit about the role of Lockheed Martin around the Mars rover. Yeah, so we build the aeroshell. So that is, think of as you're coming into the atmosphere, it, it is what helps the payload survive entry. And, you know, we, it was you know, been, been called seven minutes of terror when you, when you go into reentry of the Mars atmosphere. And so Lockheed Martin is really the world technology experts when it comes to building those aeroshells. We've built every aeroshell that NASA has ever used. This is the 10th one. 
We've been involved with every Mars mission that NASA has ever been part of going back to the 70s with Viking. And so it's pretty special. We, we feel incredibly honored to be part of it. And it's about science exploration. It's about finding out what could be happening to our planet and ha using Mars as a precursor to that. And anything you learn about was there habitat or life or anything that existed and anything we can learn from that and maybe apply to future generations here on earth, uh, you know, that's what we should be doing. Yeah. Well, you, you've been in the unique position of having to work both sides of these kinds of events. And, you know, since you did work at NASA, from a communications, kind of a communications readiness standpoint, what's different for a communicator inside a company on something like this versus when you were sitting at NASA? Yeah, I think you'll appreciate this, you and Gary both being on the corporate side. And when you have a set of customers, particularly when you work in the industrial side or for us, you know, you, the United States government is our, our number one customer. You, you certainly partner, we serve, and we provide services for our customer and you want them to take lead and, and certainly get all the glory for the mission. But we also want to provide the expertise and be able to provide the, the technical, technological and the, the subject matter experts in a way that can help add enough color and context to what is happening. Now, NASA mm -hmm. certainly can do that, but they are so great about using their contractors as a partner and a family in, in these types of missions. And, and, and Mike, as you know, from your days on the Hill, NASA has all of these satellite offices the Jet Propulsion Laboratory is the key NASA center that is leading this Mars Perseverance project. And so we work with, we work closely with each center, you know, from Johnson Space Center to the Kennedy Space Center, and then JPL on a lot of the science missions. So you want to really work well with the folks that have been planning this mission for years and years. There's a lot that goes into it. And, and it's, like I said, we're, we're pleased to be part of yet another one. I look forward to success. Well, in fact, it's a little bit like if you're in a company that supplies a brand name, you're working this job, if you will, or this project, but it's not just your brand. It's also the brand of your customer that you have to have ever most in mind. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and, and as you all know, from, from a comms perspective, we always got to you know, worst case scenario planning, right? We got to think of crisis comms. You got to start thinking about reputational protection and enhancement. And you, you've got to think through in your comms planning, okay, here's what success looks like, but let's also plan for a bad day. And how do we message that? And I think, you know, you know, you all would, would probably have the same experience. You'd rather have the best crisis plan that you never have to use rather than <laughs> the opposite where where your hair on fire and dealing with a situation like oh my goodness we didn't plan for this scenario that's I've been in those scenarios too and boy that's not fun well well welcome Dean and I have to say this is like one of the best days of my career because <laughs> seriously I've, I've been a space fanboy forever you know all three of us grew up in that time and I'm just thrilled to talk to you about this. And I've been, I, I've been really fixated on, on this mission to Mars. I, so one of the things I wanted to ask you, you mentioned it, Dean, is, is so how will Perseverance, you know, try to answer the question, is there life on Mars? You mentioned it's going to roam in that valley for a while. 
hopefully two years, I think you said, right? Yes, two and years. How, how's the rover that going to help determine whether there's life there? And what will they do if they run into Elon Musk? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the, the, the billion dollar question, isn't it? Um, you know, I, I, he, we know he left California. Is he on Mars? Is he in Austin? I'm not sure. We're not sure where, where Elon is. But I will say that, you know, what's, what's really interesting about this mission, as you mentioned, Rover will, there's, there's very detailed plans for each day, how far the, the Rover will go, what type of samples that the Rover will collect. We're going to have, there's a, a planned drone helicopter I to fly, that. Ingenuity. It'll be the first time that we've ever flown a drone autonomously on another planet. So there's a lot of really great mission milestones for this. And like you said, you're a space fanboy, so am I. It, it is super cool to see how American ingenuity, human ingenuity is at work behind all the things that are planned for this mission. But to get to your question, you know, as, as the rover goes and collects samples, much like you look, you open up a tree and you look at the rings of the tree to understand the history, mm -hmm. same kind of application as you start thinking about minerals and rocks and starting to collect samples and understanding the history of the planet. This particular crater is an ancient lake on Mars. Ah. And so understanding, well, if water existed there before, we know that's a critical element to life form. So what else can we learn by studying this particular area, which is a large, large area? And so collecting samples and then hopefully someday future mission being able to return some of those samples back to earth to study as well and that will be a first when that happens so wow. look i can tell you there's there's a lot to learn here too from and, and mike and i talk about it in the talked about it in the news segment i am so impressed with the communications capabilities of nasa i i, I maybe it's because of my special interest in the subject but the ability to take complex scientific information and convey it is really, really impressive. All right. So let me switch gears. But can I tell you one thing, Gary? Yeah, so sure. I, I completely agree with you. Really great team there. I was blessed to be there for, for four plus years. Bob Jacobs and the team on the ground really do a nice job. And you're right. Trying to tell those complex, compelling stories without sucking the cool out of it is really hard because totally. you know, scientists and engineers, they love their, their widgets. And sometimes getting them to talk about it in an interesting, compelling way can be quite challenging. But I, I got to tell you, can I just share one story? That yeah, I sure, go ahead. Space fanboy, you'll love. So two things that probably stand out, like my highlight of my time at NASA. One is I was fortunate enough to moderate the 35th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Oh, wow. So I got a chance to meet Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Mike Collins, and I have a great picture with my then fiance and now wife of 15 years with that crew. But I'll never forget, I, I, I was talking to my fiance then, and I was saying, and she was like, oh, how's your day going? And I said, well, I just got an email from the first man on the moon. And I, I don't know what your day's been like, but that was pretty cool. So that was one of like, like great highlights. And oh, Neil nice. Armstrong was the coolest, nicest human being you could mention. And, and, and you know, we, we lost him and a lot of our Apollo astronauts, but he was great. The other one was Gene Cernan, the last man on the moon, oh, that's who we great. also lost. But Gene was in my, I, I had a, a bunch of great space photos in my office. And one is the earth rising, you know, the famous yeah, photo yeah. of the earth coming up. 
And so I have it framed in the middle of my office at NASA and Gene Cernan walks in and he's talking to me about something and he's staring at the photo and he goes, he goes, he goes, you like this photo? Did you, why did you pick this photo? And I go, I love this photo. This is such an iconic photo. One of the, one of the things that always drew me to NASA. And he goes, yeah, you love that photo? And I go, yeah. And he goes, I'm the guy that took it. And I was like, <laughs> oh, wow. And I was like, so you know what, Mike and Gary, you'll, so he leaves. I actually dropped him off that, you know, when we got done with our meeting and at his hotel. And I was like, oh my gosh, why didn't I get him to sign the photo? <laughs> <laughs> so I completely forgot. It's like one of the things I really kicked myself for. And but what what I mean that talk about a joy, loving yes. being part of NASA and meeting like everyday people like that all the time was just amazing. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm so like I say, so jealous. <laughs> I just <laughs> Well, let me let me ask you about that. It, and it, you know, space flight, particularly manned space flight, is inherently dangerous. And you were a journalist, you know, originally. How did that help you in your role as the chief spokesperson, Dean? I, I always think, you know, the folks who who go into communication from journalism have a certain set of skills, you know, and and that are beneficial. But particularly, now we were talking before we started recording the podcast about the Columbia tragedy. And so how does how does the journalistic mindset help you do your job both at NASA and then today? Yeah, no, I, I think you would relate with this, Gary. I, I will tell you, and, and Mike, I, I will tell you so a couple of things. One is I had the time that I broke into to journalism, I, I was at one point had the opportunity to be a broadcast journalism. This is when I was in Phoenix, broadcast journalism. I wrote for the newspaper, the Arizona Republic. I had a column. Wow. I, I had a radio show and I also wrote for one of the blogs. So I was on all four mediums at one time. And as you all know, and your listeners know, it, it's very different how you communicate, write yeah. and, and, and message on all four of those, those platforms and channels. And so that was, a, you know, I was a young journalist. But it taught me something really quickly. A, like I had to be super creative when I had a, a story of how to spread it out across those channels. But B, what worked and what didn't work and how to anticipate what would, what, and this was way before what we knew what trending was or yeah. how things were going. So it much different before even we had the analytics that we have today. And so that has really helped me for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, when I was at NASA and I made the crossover it was the first time that I, I had to answer the tough questions. Boy, it's a hell of a lot easier asking the tough yeah, questions, true. but boy, answering them is really hard. So what was good is I, as a reporter, a former reporter at that point, you could anticipate and know where a reporter was going with a story by the questions they were asking. So you knew where the headline was, you knew where all of these things were leading to. And so that is always, you don't lose that as a reporter. You, yeah. As a journalist, you get that and you understand where a reporter is going or possibly could go. And so as we, as I prep my CEOs or my executives, we always think through those, what, where could, if you get this question, this is what could lead to the next question. And here's how you want to either lean into that or let's, let's bridge to another topic that we want to go talk to. And yeah. so that's been very helpful for me. The other piece is as we are making the transition as we, we have as an in industry and as a function, but at Lockheed Martin, really on digital first. And what does that mean? You know, we, we put out a third less press releases than we did just two years ago. And it is how do you lean into 
the digital mindset and understand how it's going to go influence influencers. And so it's a very different. So those early days of being on having uh, writing for a blog and understanding almost a podcast like you guys have of how that can influence and how you can get super targeted with that information has now changed how I think about creating content, message target and segment audiences, and really drive a narrative or a campaign. And so I think that those early years as being a, you know, a journalist across all those mediums has really influenced my thinking as a CCO and how I help develop my team and skill sets that I think that will be beneficial to driving the Lockheed Martin narrative yeah. and brand going forward. It, it, as you mentioned, it helps in recruiting, you know, what kind of yeah. skills you need on your team talent. Now let's go to something that none of us were trained for, which is in these jobs. You guys have had a lot of change, Dean, in the last few years in, in executive suite, CEO, COVID certainly led to a lot of change. And, and so what we're seeing is lots of change management responsibilities, at least you know, being extended into, into our teams. How did you and your team help Lockheed Martin navigate all the change that you've had to go through in the past couple of years? Yeah, I think the opening was a perfect one by Mike. I mean, it's been nonstop for two years. I came back to Lockheed Martin. It was funny. I walked into my my new office at Lockheed Martin, and I was like, wow, eight years ago, this is the office I walked in to resign, and now I am walking in back into the office, and I'm now leading the whole function. So it it was interesting. I I think a couple of things on, on preparing for change. I think you're right. Change communications, crisis comms. All, these are all now starting to blur a little bit more yeah. and more. And, and as yeah. we're going, I don't think any of us ever prepared a case study going through school or even in our careers about, okay, hey, let's let's build that, that crisis comms plan and change management communication plan around a global pandemic. I mean, I don't think any of us thought that we would be dealing with this particularly a year later. But I will, you know, to answer your question, a couple of things that, that we did, because we at Lockheed Martin with 110,000 plus employees, right. we were basically 5% of a virtual workforce, 5%. Overnight, we went from 5 to 70%. So not only do you just think about that pull on the architecture, your IT infrastructure, yeah. to just how do you get the rhythms? Like, what's the rhythm like for that virtual workforce? And as you know, we all know, comms is the, the dot connector to all of those things, whether, whether it's the communication of, all right, here are the types of folks that are going to be working from home full time to, hey, here's what you need to, you know, we're going to ship you a different kind of computer or questions you might have in the pandemic. Or, hey, what about the people that actually do need to show up to the manufacturing site? Because we still have to build the F-35s and the CH-53Ks because that doesn't go away. We have to produce those for our government contractor. But now how do you do it with social distancing and new protocols and cleaning your facilities and all of those things? So those all require communication. So we got into, much like you would do in a crisis, a regular rhythm of bringing all the right people together cross-functionally, not just comms people, but all the people that were involved with your facilities and your maintenance and all of those things. And we had a regular daily rhythm of what is happening, what needs to be communicated. And we found a way to get to our employees. And what we found was, and everybody was so afraid that we're going to have COVID communication fatigue. 
And what we found was what the right rhythm was and how to deliver information in a way that our employees wanted to consume it. So as one example, we're pretty lucky to have a chief medical officer. So early on, we made her our spokesperson for anything that came from the CDC, what we were doing when it came to our protocol. And she's amazing anyway. But mm-hmm. she now has a different level of reputational and 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 just confidence by our employees. It wasn't just the the executive well, leadership. You, 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 you provided a focal point for That's for the exactly. entire company, and it was a of- medical professional that could break yeah. this these things down. And so we really got we saw the uptick in engagement there that we were tracking how employees appreciated more information from from Dr. Barber. And so we leaned into that early and often. And so that was one of the things that I think we learned. We, we learned and built our plan across you know, every single day and learned to modify it. But the, those were some of the early things you know, and early, early learnings. I love Dean too. You're, you're so right to characterize it. it. Communications is sort of the connective tissue, right? When these things happen. Yeah. And you, you're the one that, that brings people together and, and provides that common platform. And in many cases, direction and strategy. So kudos to you. Uh, You know, one of the things I'm really curious about is so for so many of us, you know, it's easy to talk about what we've done. I'd be curious about given the nature of what you've gone through, given the, and and given the wide breadth of a company with 110,000 people, and you said more than 70 people were working, 70% of the people were working remote or are working remote. How does that change going forward? And how do you reimagine, if you will, to use a GE phrase, how do you reimagine what the workplace of the future looks like for Lockheed Martin? Yeah, I know that's a great question. And and Gary, we we probably use your line that you came up with at GE. You know, it is something that we're spending a lot of time, not only as an executive leadership team, but also seeing. So I think what we figured out early on as an executive leadership team at Lockheed Martin was, first of all, pre-pandemic, 5% of teleworkers or virtual working, probably not the right number. 70%, probably not sustainable either. So what is that number? And, and right now we're kind of landing on 25 to 30%. And so what does that look like from a footprint sense? Because now you can still start analyzing, all right, if we're gonna do 30% of our workforce that will work virtually, what does that, or a hybrid. So maybe they come in one or two days a week and we, we know the old term is hoteling, but the kind of flex space. How do you think about flex space differently? What does that look like? And now, you can't pack employees in like we did pre-pandemic. You got to have more social distancing. You got to think about the, the protocols that you need to have in place post-pandemic. So we're doing all that. We're calling it, we actually call the, the campaign called LM Forward, and it's our future mm-hmm. workforce. And we are laying out how from, from all the details of what it's going to, what's a footprint going to look like with 30% working virtually. How do you keep them engaged and connected to their teams? with all the new tools that we've had to use, whether it's Zoom or, or Slack or all, all the other the, the tools that, that we've all been using during the pandemic. And then what does it also mean for your, your facility footprints, right? You're not going to need the same space before. So from a business decision, do you start looking at your lease space and do you start looking at what you own and do you need the same 
configurations. And so we're doing all that analysis right now, I'm sure like many other companies and starting to say, this is an opportunity. I mean, we talked about many companies have gone through digital transformation and, and, and thinking about the workforce of the future. I think this pandemic has accelerated both of those for many companies and particularly for us at Lockheed Martin. So Dean, I want to follow up on, on this conversation you were just or discussion we're having is so with all of that, that transition that you're making and the changes that COVID has brought on, whether you call it a hybrid workforce or 70-30, whatever it is, I mean, a lot of the stuff that you guys do, of course, is super double secret, right? So this must impose on you restrictions that you have to be doubly sure that the folks who aren't on property, aren't in your facilities, are operating in a secure way. How much does that complicate the job? Yeah, no, it, it definitely complicates it. When you think about, you know, breaking up uh, or looking at our workforce and segments, much like you would think about audience segmentation, very similarly, our classified workforce, you know, typically think about classified spaces is, is usually small yeah. and off the grid and things like that. Well, now you have to reimagine those differently. And so we're having to do that, thinking about shifts. It's changed how we are, are approaching just even what would be a typical two-week, you know, 40-hour-a-week work week. We're, we're changing that to thinking about, well, maybe we need to have different shifts. And we work about, you know, do four, 10-hour days for four days and that give people, you know, optional days off. And so we're we're uh, experimenting with all of these things. We're also thinking about different uses of classified space, working with the government and our government customer to start thinking about, well, look, is there ways to do classified environments that are virtual? And that was never even thought of before, but now because of the pandemic, being forced to think that way. So I think the our government contractors thinking about that more, or as contractors, we're thinking about that. So I think everything is on the table when we think about the workforce of the future and what that could be. And I think what we're going to see is that employees are going to be able to go and live where they want to live with their families, and that it's going to be employers that are going to have to adapt to that situation. And yeah. the ones that can do that better will get the best talent. And the ones that cannot will be trying to catch up. Yeah. And look, we're seeing it not just in in sort of the hardware, software space that you operate in, but even you, you see a lot of some of the big, fin- the banks, a lot of their folks are deciding that maybe they don't want to live in Manhattan, that, you know, sunny coast of Florida might be a better place. And they're going to have to adjust to that, Dean, right? And, and, and just as as any employer is going to have to at this point. Well, you're just you're seeing that in California, right? Look yeah. at all these these California-based companies that are now moving their headquarters to Austin, and it's not in Austin, Texas. It's not because you know you ask some of the questions of why would they like Orbital? Why would Orbital move from San Francisco to Austin? They already had a big facility in Austin, but they said half their employees are or moving to Austin. So they're going to just like name the headquarters where their employee base is. And so I think you're going to see some of those decisions, you know, and, and also they'll be driven financially as well. But I think you're going to see some of those. So some of those decisions play out. And I think where a company's base is going to be less relevant in the future. Yeah. Well, I want to ask one, another question, Dean, about 
the variety of things that you're responsible for when you're a CCO and the kinds of communication topics that you focus on. You guys are in the midst of a acquisition. And I, I see today that you're responding to a request for more information from the U.S. Federal Trade Commission about the proposed acquisition of Aerojet Rocketdyne. So talk a little bit, particularly in your space, no pun intended, but in your industry, <laughs> right? What, what's it like to manage communications around an acquisition of that kind these days? You know, it's interesting uh, you asked that, Gary, because it, when I went through the interview process to, to come back to Lockheed Martin, yeah. I, I think I had to remind them a couple of times, like, you know, I used to work there before I, I left the company. I had to remind them. I was, I was so afraid I was going to get to the to the, to the final piece. But I, I left the aerospace and defense industry to go to energy. And I and it was strategic in a way that it was driven by family. But I wanted to have a new experience outside of aerospace and defense. But in doing so, I went to ConocoPhillips, and it, I loved yeah. the, the, the company, but they were going through a spinoff of their upstream and downstream yeah, companies, yeah. and it was a big kind of spinout, and I got the chance to lead comms through that whole spinout. And so, and, it, and during that was also two CEO transitions. So Jim Mulva, who had been leading ConocoPhillips sure. and brought Conoco and Phillips together, was retiring, it was two new CEOs going to be in place. So I, not only did I do the spinoff, but I also did the two CEO announcements. Well, fast forward, I'm, I'm interviewing to become the CCO at Lockheed Martin, and I'm thinking all the questions are going to be around my aerospace and defense, you know, <laughs> history and experience, NASA, and, you know, working at Boeing and working at Lockheed Martin, not one. Everything was around M&A, so tell me about your M&A experience yeah, and yeah. divestitures and the deals that you did both at ConocoPhillips and spinning off uh, Phillips and ConocoPhillips. And then at Honeywell, we did a bunch of acquisitions mm -hmm. and they said, walk me through their thinking. So if I hadn't taken those, those two career paths, I wouldn't have had the M&A experience that I have today that really is helpful. And I will tell you, to your point, there, there's a lot of thinking in that, right? When I think about so M&A communications, yeah. right? Lots of work in how do you manage parallel tracks of both employee communications and investor and stakeholder comms, right? That's super important. And then customer communications, right? Yeah. So for us, for Lockheed Martin and the, the definitive agreement that we've signed to acquire the Aerojet Rocketdyne business, we got to be talking to the Federal Trade Commission and messaging there and the right to our regulators. We got to make sure the U.S. government feels comfortable that we're, we're doing and thinking about it the right way. And then our employees have to understand that. We have to be tied into what the Aerojet Rocketdyne employees are also asking questions about. Yeah, because you have a whole and change management piece on the that, back. That, that, exactly. That's exactly right. You had a big change. All the questions, are, you know, my benefits changing. What about my pension? You know, what are the tra transition? What are, do we keep our brand? They have this great webpage of rocket.com, right? They're yeah. so concerned about losing rocket.com. <laughs> we don't want to lose that either. So, you know, it's all of these <laughs> elements that you think about that you have to message through it. And that's incredibly important. But a couple of the things, the learnings that I had from my ConocoPhillips days was ensuring transparency, right? You cannot over communicate yeah. during a spinoff or M&A. You got to drive to milestones. So what, be really clear on 
when something is a milestone within the deal before the closure. So what what do you so for us, this is a second request that came in from the Federal Trade Commission. Not unusual at all. Exactly. Every big consolidation and acquisition within the aerospace and defense industry for the last 15 years, there's been a second request. So that's it just extends time to do more due diligence. And so being able to explain that to employees like, hey, you know, this is this is standard operating procedure. Absolutely. This doesn't mean Market. anything like into markets. Right. That's, into that's market. exactly right. And it's artic- and then and then the last thing that I would say, and the critical element that I think should be just you know um, blocking and tackling is articulating what the value proposition is. Why does it make sense for these two companies to come together? Why does it make sense for the acquisition? How is it going to be better for the customer? How is it going to be better for your shareholders? And being really clear and concise on that messaging is incredibly important. I, I, I used to remember a question employees always would ask us during you know the many acquisitions we did at GE and you're putting businesses together and employees would stand up in town halls and say, can I ask a question? Does one plus one equal two or does one plus one equal one? <laughs> <laughs> you know, from a job standpoint. So, yeah, of course, no, no, that was, that's always the good question, right? <laughs> because you're trying to sell it to the street of hey, there's efficiencies, and, yes. and then our our employees here. Wait, wait a minute, efficiencies? That means there are going to be less jobs, not more jobs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a hard one. It's a hard one to message and walk down that line. So, so Dean, we've got a large number of our listeners who are students, like like Chris. We also have a fair number of people who are fairly early in their careers. I've known you for some time. I know you grew up kind of humbly in San Antonio. I can't imagine that when you were like in middle school or high school that you thought you'd be doing what you are now. What in your mind got you from San Antonio to where you are today? You know, that's a great question, Mike. And and it's funny, I'm sure you and Gary get similar questions from you know early careers or students that are thinking through you know their career path and and I get the question you know commonly that says okay how, how do I get to your level and what's the path and, and I wish I could you know pull out my secret map to say here is the the path that I took and it, you know everything that I did was strategically planned and was part of milestones to get me to the role that I, I have today. And, and as we all know, it just a lot of it is dumb blind luck. A lot of it is networking and having great relationships with people like you. And I, I will tell you, there's one common denominator that, that I, I will encourage your listeners and, and folks that are early career is don't ever be afraid to take a risk. Don't ever be afraid. And if you're feeling comfortable you know, I grew up in journalism, right? I grew up where it was standard practice that every two years, you better be making a market move mm-hmm. or you're, you are going to get passed by. So I had that mentality constantly of, okay, I got I to gotta hone in my skills. I got to get super as good as I could in this market to get ready for the next market. And I think I've taken that same mentality on I guess my resume is a little bit of a reflection of that, but but also to say, what are the skill sets that I could do? And I think, Mike, one of our first early conversations, I even asked you, all right, what do I need to do to improve to, to be in those conversations for those CTO 
And it's about, you know, having different experiences. So not being afraid just because you love maybe media relations, unless that's the only thing you ever want to do in your career, you better find a way to learn how to do, you know, community relations or ESG or financial comms or employee communications or now digital and social. And when you have the breath where you can say, I've done an assignment or a stretch, you know, rotation or, you know, a different job set in the, each of those categories. That's what you need to have to be sitting in a CCO role because you you have responsibility for all of those things. And so being able to have an understanding, and, and I worked at, at a PR agency as well. Mm-hmm. And that has helped me so incredibly as I work with our agencies because I know what their their pools are and I know what yeah. motivates them. And I yeah. understand how do you make them part of the team. And so those experiences, I think, are the things that I never shied away from and that I would encourage your listeners and folks that are, you know, students today and early careers, don't be afraid to take on an assignment and maybe take a job that mm, it doesn't sound that it's something that would be my passion. But ultimately, those will be the jobs that'll be like my ConocoPhillips, mm-hmm. where you take a job that ends up giving mm-hmm. you a certain set of experiences that now set you up for having the conversation for the big job someday. Yeah, very smart. You know, before we leave this, I'd love for you to just riff a little bit. What's what's next for Lockheed Martin and maybe even what's next for its, what it's going to do with NASA? Yeah, I, I will tell you, I, I'm so excited about the future of our company. You know, we had a CEO transition in the middle of a pandemic and Jim Taker has come on. He came from a different industry, American Tower. So his company built all of the cell towers and he was part of the whole conversation of setting standards for 5G. And so he comes in with, a, he's a technologist and he thinks about things very differently. So he's come in and kind of flipped us on how we think and being visionary for what is the future. How can we be a better company for the U.S. government and our allies to ensure deterrence that we don't have future conflicts? So how do you have instill technology in a way that will ensure that nobody will ever want to have a conflict because the technology superiority and how you connect things and the data analysis is so good for for the United States and our allies that nobody will ever want to, we'll all want to sing Kumbaya because it's it's better to be that way. And so he very much believes in that. And so as a communicator, thinking through how do you start thinking about things like artificial intelligence and machine learning and 5G.mil and some of these technologies that are, in, you know, that are today, but will be in the future that will be needed on the battlefield to ensure that there isn't a battlefield right. is, is really powerful. And so I'm, I'm really supercharged and excited to be part of that. And as communicators, having to be the dot connector to bring that to life, a lot of complexity. How does it all fit together and work together? How do you tell that story of futuristic technologies that will come into play for the United States and its allies. And being on the on the front end of that is, is pretty exciting. So that's the future for us. I think on the space side, everything space will always be the high ground and the ultimate high ground. Mm-hmm. And even in the scenario I just described, will play a very key element for the future deterrence of, of our globe and our world. And I think that, you know, NASA will continue to be the frontier and the, the ex- exploration agency for, our, for the United States. 
but I think space will have a different mix that we see in the future that won't always just be exploration. It's always fun, inspirational, and exciting to be with you, my friend. Thank you for being on The Crux. Dean, thank you I so thank much. You. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.